calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 166. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Back from Balticon was a great weekend. Got to meet some fans, run some cool panels, play some absurd music with Dusty Magnum, my lunatic musical duo partner. We did a live reading recording at the convention with Heather Welliver and Jonathan McNeil. Great story called Growing Humans by Neil Buchanan. It's got tree aliens in it. That puppy's on the Drabblecast B-Sides podcast. If you aren't linked into that feed, now's a great time to get hooked up for more Drabblecasty content on a sporadic basis. You can find a link in our show notes or at the very top of our webpage, drabblecast.org. So this week is Tim Pratt week. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? You say as you flip through your day planner. <laughs> it totally snuck up on me this year. We're doing a cross promo with the mighty podcastle called Everybody Loves Tim. Because, hell, when you think about it, everybody does love Tim. Tim Pratt rocks. His fiction is consistently solid and engaging. So once you finish up this week's episode, head over to podcastle.org for another sweet hit off the Pratt bong. They're running a really fantastic story of his this week called Little Gods, and they're sending all their fantasy nerds our way. Fuck or land! <laughs> Just playing. Actually, you'll find no LARPing Gelflings at Podcastle. It's a free weekly podcast that features top-notch stories from the fantasy genre, which is a huge-ass genre. If you like the stories we run on Drabblecast, you'll definitely be into what Podcastle's doing these days. Go check them out at podcastle.org. So let's get this sucker going, shall we? How about we set the tone with a little Drabble? Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Nathan Lee, and it's called The Work That Must Be Done. 
Nathan's an amateur wordsmith with delusions of competence, he says, although I'd argue he's not as delusional as he thinks. He's had numerous drabbles featured on our show, I think more than any other individual, actually, and he's quite prolific. Check out his site, www.mirrorshards.org, where he regularly posts 100-word masterpieces. In the factory that makes teddy bears, there are rosy-cheeked women who stuff the soft padding into the fur. They laugh and tell each other about their grandchildren. In the factory that makes teddy bears, artists paint bright-patterned bow ties and miniature jackets. They smile and have camaraderie contests to see who can make the most delightful mixture of colors. In the factory that makes teddy bears, there is a sad-faced old man with a hammer. As each fluffy body passes by his station and sits up, blinking with the wonder of the new world, he swings the hammer once, sharply. Oof, dirty jobs, huh? But hey, somebody's got to do it. And that leads us into this week's story, Jubilee by Tim Pratt. Tim's works appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The Year's Best Fantasy, and other nice places, and has won him a Hugo Award. If you haven't listened to his Marla Mason Urban Fantasy series yet, you're really missing out. Think Goodfellas underground crime scene mixed with badass magic. Download book one, Blood Engines, from audible.com or iTunes, or get it in print at amazon.com. Just do a search for Marla Mason. Or you can follow the links in our show notes. I think you weirdos will dig. So, without further ado, we bring you Jubilee by Tim Pratt. You shouldn't shake someone with post-traumatic stress syndrome and survivor's guilt awake in the middle of the night, but that's just what someone was doing to me, and I sat up in bed, clamping down on a scream. Being shaken in a dim bedroom was better than my dream, though. Bodies pressing against walls, people moving across a train platform like a starburst patterned stampede. Andy, Andy, come on now. Jubilee, just past Barefoot Creek. The man in my childhood bedroom, hand on my shoulder, was Bill Waters. I hadn't seen him in ten years, since I headed west right after high school graduation, but he hadn't changed much. Still football player big, running a little too fat, with mean piggy eyes and a big grin. I swung my legs out of bed, blinking, and Mom chose that moment to flip on the lights, dazzling me. Come on, Bill said again. I got a thermos of coffee for you, but we've got to go. Your mama's got that big old cooler ready for us. Okay, I mumbled, wondering what time it was. Three? Four? A.M.? I was still scrambled from the plane ride and the time change. Three hours lost on the trip from California to Alabama... And I hadn't been sleeping much anyway since what happened with Sarah in the train station. 
I was exhausted. When the first shots were fired on the platform, I'd started running, and in some respects I felt like I hadn't stopped running since. I pulled on a pair of jeans and a shirt, the clothes I'd worn on the plane, and went to the doorway where Bill waited impatiently. My mom hovered in the background, the way she had for most of my childhood. My dad had died when I was young, and my mom had always been something like a ghost too. Still, home was the only place I'd known to go after my life got trampled. I kissed mom on the cheek. Are you coming? No, no, she murmured. I'll clean what you bring. Go on now. Two minutes later, I was in Bill's enormous truck, zooming down the dark back roads toward Barefoot Creek, the waters of Mobile Bay occasionally visible through the breaks in the trees to the west. We were all real sorry to hear about your girl, Bill said. We were looking forward to meeting her. Thanks, I said, though I wouldn't have thought to introduce her to Bill. Even if he did live next door to Mom now, we'd never been friends. Or enemies, exactly. I was just somebody Bill beat up in junior high and ignored in high school. And now we were grown up. And he was taking me to a jubilee. Hell of a way to come home. Ah, well, not too many people here yet, Bill said, satisfied, pulling the truck off the side of the road. I remembered him as the kind of person who went to an all-you-can-eat buffet and loaded up his plate with a towering mountain of food, as if supplies were going to run out, or as if someone else might get the choicest bits. At a jubilee, there was plenty to go around, but Bill was still pleased to beat the rush. I was, too, but only because I didn't want to talk to anybody. I only wanted to sleep for a week and be spared consciousness and memory. Dragging me out of bed into the Jubilee was a classic example of Southern therapy, community outreach to take my mind off tragedy. I could appreciate it in a way. Back in San Francisco, none of my neighbors even knew me, and none of them bothered to ask where that woman I lived with was lately, or why I was crying on the sidewalk. They just walked around me. In San Francisco, I'd wished for comfort and sympathy, but now that I was back home, I only wanted to be left alone. Bill got out of the truck and went around back, and I followed. The air was warm and moist, a breeze coming in from the east, the smell of the bay so familiar and long forgotten, it made my bones ache. When I looked up, I could see mosquitoes buzzing against the face of the half moon. Bill took a cooler out of the pickup, along with a few big net bags and a long, three-tined spear. A gig for frogging or spearfishing in the shallows. I helped with the cooler, and holding it between us, we crossed the road and followed Barefoot Creek, a two-foot-wide trickle, down to the gritty sand shore of Mobile Bay. Here in the moonlight, the shore seemed scattered with diamonds, a shimmering field of sparkling silver along the edge of the black water. The shallow water boiled with life, 
Thousands of fish, dead, dying, or flopping in the shallows, littered the shore. A dozen people in their nightgowns, pajamas, or hastily thrown on street clothes moved along the shore, bending, exclaiming, whistling, and laughing. Some had flashlights, but most worked by moonlight, scooping up flounder, blue crab, and shrimp. Some carried coolers while others improvised with wash tubs or trash bags. One woman, armed with a gig, speared three flatfish in one strike, a wriggling kebab that she raised up for a moment before depositing her catch in a basket. More people were arriving now, and the voices and laughter multiplied. This was a jubilee, as I remembered them, a pre-dawn beach party to celebrate the mysterious bounty of the bay. Well, Lori Perkins was sleeping out on the pier, Bill said, gesturing toward a little spur of wood and pilings jutting out into the bay, just long enough to accommodate a small boat. The water was real calm yesterday, so he thought it might be a good night for a jubilee. We set down the cooler. So he calls me up, and some other people it looks like, and I figured you wouldn't want to miss it. Some luck though, huh? This happened in the first night you get home. Sure is, I said, and Bill went off toward the water, gig in hand, hailing friends, then set to work spearing the masses of bewildered, jostling fish. Jubilees only happen once or twice a summer, if that, and some years they didn't happen at all. For as long as anyone could remember, there were mass fish suicides on the shores of Mobile Bay. Sometimes they stretched for a mile or more, but this one was smaller only a few hundred yards of fish-littered beach, and even so, there was enough for anyone who cared to come. Most of these people would skip work tomorrow and spend all day cleaning fish. For the poor folks around here, a jubilee was a genuine manna-from-heaven miracle, and though everyone would be sick of fish pretty soon, boredom was heaps better than hunger. I had spent plenty of summer nights as a kid, laying out on piers with a sleeping bag it was too hot to need, watching the water and the late-night flounder giggers, hoping to see the ripples in the water and the on-rushing silvery flow that heralded a jubilee. Jubilees were wonderful things, almost as exciting as that one winter it snowed, and for the same reason. Glorious, chaotic upset of natural order. Being out in the middle of the night instead of sleeping, seeing the barbers and fry cooks and school teachers and city councilmen all together laughing, reaping the bay's bounty. It was paradise for a kid. Why had I never stopped to think what it must be like for the fish? It wasn't like the fish decided to give themselves up for the good of the humans on the shore. Something drove them out of the bay. I thought, unavoidably, of the panic in the train station, the man with a gun on the platform, not even a terrorist, just a man who decided to kill as many people as he could, and the people surging out in all directions, heedless, rushing for safety any place it might be found. I slapped at a mosquito on my neck and walked down the beach. I had no interest in getting my feet wet or feeling fish in my hands or wriggling on the end of a spear, and the sight of those fish flopping madly in their hundreds made me dizzy. 
nor did I want to talk to old acquaintances, and anyway, their sympathy would take a back seat to the fish. Shortly after dawn, probably, this cornucopia would dry up, and any surviving fish would swim back to the depths of the bay. These people had to gig while the gigging was good. When I was a kid, I hadn't thought much about why the fish and shrimp and crabs fled the bay for the shore. And while I hadn't exactly followed the science with a close eye, I gathered that the current theory involved decaying algae on the bay floor, somehow robbing a localized area of oxygen, creating a floating dead zone. A bubble of killing water that moved, driving the denizens of the bay before it. At least, until they hit the shore. I tried to visualize such a thing, a space of pure negation, a submerged, invisible bubble of suffocation moving beneath the waves. It seemed improbable, too complicated, like there must be a more straightforward reason for the fish to flee, something even worse than flapping in the shallows, waiting to be speared. I kept walking down the beach, Sand crunching under my shoes, the voices behind me fading into distance, the boiling water calming down as I passed the edges of the Jubilee. I looked at the moonlight on the water, wondering if I'd made the right choice. Sarah and I had long ago bought tickets to fly back here, and when the morning came, I just took the flight. I'd done the funeral, work understood, we were between deadlines, and the vacation was already booked. I needed to go somewhere. I'd already bought a handgun. I knew when Barrett Wayne Johnston was being arraigned. I'd started thinking about ways to smuggle the pistol through courthouse security. Planning the murder of Sarah's killer had strangely helped keep me sane, giving me a purpose and a problem to work out. But instead of following through, I'd left my gun in our too empty apartment and flown home. I'd run home to Mama, and I would miss my chance to put a bullet in Barrett Wayne Johnston, one bullet to make up for all the ones he'd fired into that crowd. I knew coming home was prudence, the smart thing, not throwing my life away, but it felt like cowardice. And anyway, it was hard not to believe my life had ended when Sarah's did. I heard a strange sound, just loud enough to jostle me out of my thoughts. A mule, sort of. An animal kind of whine. I cocked my head, listening for it, but heard nothing. Hey, Andy, Bill said, startling me. I didn't like him coming upon me unawares. He'd done it when we were in junior high, just before knocking me down or trying to shove my head in a toilet or wrenching my arms behind me and kicking me repeatedly in the ass. It had been nothing personal. I was a victim. He was a predator. Surely that had changed. Mom liked Bill. He'd given her a deal on a car from his lot, helped her carry her groceries in sometimes, but it was hard to look at him without seeing the grinning bastard who'd held my face in the dirt. He held the gig casually across his shoulder. You all right? Don't want any fish? I just shook my head. Nah, I appreciate you bringing me out here, but... I just want to be alone. Bill remained oblivious to simple social cues. Yeah, pretty broken up about your girl, I expect. Your mama showed me pictures. She was real pretty. 
I nodded. She had been. That Johnston fella even made the news down here, Bill said. Shot all them people. Just bad luck your girl was there. Sarah wasn't shot, I said, digging my heel in the sand. Johnston isn't even being charged with her murder. The crowd killed her. How's that? I didn't want to say it, but Bill had to hear it, apparently. Had to have it spelled out. She got trampled, Bill. When Johnston started shooting, everybody started running, and she got pulled away from me by the crowd. She tripped, or someone pushed her. Who knows? And then they... stepped on her. A lot of people. Someone broke her neck. They called it an accident. She'd been so bloody, so bruised when I went to identify her. I couldn't stand to think about it, to remember it. Accident? Screw that, Bill said. That's at Johnston's fault. He started the panic. Had have killed that bastard. I could only shrug. I heard that mule again, louder this time. A sound like a cat, maybe, but wetter. Did you hear that? I didn't hear shit, Bill said loudly. Hell, except for my neighbors whooping and hollering and getting all the biggest flounder. Let's get back. I ignored him and went down the beach toward the water and the sound. Something glowed in the sand, a faint green shimmer, not like a reflection, more like something with its own inherent light. What the hell? I murmured, wishing Sarah were here. She'd been in grad school, studying marine biology. She might have known what this was, but she wasn't here. I knelt, and there was a creature partially covered by sand, unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was as big as a two-year-old kid, smooth-skinned, with long, frog-like legs, a lumpily oblong body, and big, black eyes. Lacy fins hung limp from its legs and sides, and glowing green algae covered its body in spiraling, swooping patterns that seemed almost artistic. I was astonished. Bill, have you ever seen anything like this? Bill looked down, grunted noncommittally, and said, Eh, well, sometimes we get weird shit washed up here. Probably some frog that got toxic waste on it or something. Ain't no good to eat, I tell you that. And you probably ought to get away from it before you get radiation or something. I frowned. That kind of mutation happened in comic books, not real life. Though I wasn't surprised that Bill didn't understand the distinction. I reached down and brushed sand away from the thing, trying to get a better look at it. The thing blinked, or at least moved clear membranes across its eyes, and I jumped back, startled to discover it was alive. It moved, two forelimbs appearing from underneath it, dragging itself out of the sand that half buried it toward the bay. Just leave it, Bill said. There's flounder going to waste, and blue crabs. Your mama said you love blue crab. The creature had little hands and a great ragged gash in its side. And there beside it, sticking out of the sand, was a tiny spear made of wood with a bit of jaggedly broken drift glass for a point. 
The spear was over a foot long, decorated with phosphorescent algae. Black blood covered its tip. What the hell? I began, and then Bill slammed his gig down, right through the crawling thing's back, and flung it far out into the bay in one smooth motion. I reached for the little spear, and Bill kicked my hand aside, making me gasp, then snatched up the spear and hurled it into the bay, too. He knelt, took a handful of sand, and started scouring the hand that had touched the spear. You don't need to mess with shit like this, Andy. Your mama asked me to give you some attention, bring you to the Jubilee and try and cheer you up. But you had to go wandering off. Now just forget about that ugly fish you found. You left home, went out to California, and this ain't no business of yours anymore. My hand stung where he'd kicked it, and I stood up, wishing I was a few inches taller, a lot more muscular, wishing I had my never-fired gun. What was that thing, Bill? Something nasty. We see him every few years, and we don't touch him with our bare hands. We just kill him and fling him back into the bay. They don't make good eating. I heard eating him makes you go crazy. That's what some of the old folks say. And they got that mold all over them. You'd know all this if your daddy had lived, or if you'd stayed around long enough for somebody else here to treat you like a man. He shook his head. We get the Jubilees. Best not to think about why. What does it matter anyhow? They're just fish. Come on back now, I'll take you home after a while. I stepped away from him. I'll make my own way home. Bill spat. Hell with you then. You ain't changed a bit. He walked off, spear over his shoulder, still rubbing his sand-scrubbed hand against his pant leg. I looked down at my own hand, where I'd touched the little spear bearer. Glowing green algae nestled in the palm of my hand. I walked back, high up the beach, away from the water. I found Mr. McKintish, ancient as always, carefully lowering a basket of fish into the sagging bed of his pickup. Can I get a ride home? I asked. He looked at me oddly, but nodded, and we got in the truck. We were all real sorry to hear about your girl, he said, and I murmured thanks. I had forgotten this aspect of small towns, everyone knowing everyone's business. I wondered if he knew about the thing that I'd found on the beach, the spear-bearing things that lived in the bay, or if that was a secret only some men knew. Were you down there with her when it happened? Yes, sir, I said. Thinking about Sarah wasn't easier than thinking about the creature from the beach, but it was different. We were going to see a play. We were only going to ride the train a couple of stops. I shook my head. People panicked, started running. There was a sporting event or something happening that night. A lot of tourists. The platform was packed. Sarah and I got separated. I made it out. She didn't. I remembered the panic, running with the crowd, 
like being something mindless, just part of a larger, terrified organism. As the mass of people pushed toward the stairs and escalators, as shot after shot rang out. I never even thought of Sarah while I was running. I was all bruises afterward. The marks were still fading, but I'd never fallen down like Sarah had. I'd made it out alive. Terrible thing, Mr. McKintish said, and I saw him glance at my hand, my green palm, and I turned it over in my lap. Son, he began. Just let me out here, I said. I'd rather walk the last mile. Back home, I avoided mom and went into the dusty bedroom I'd vacated a decade before. It was full of boxes now, just storage space, but my bed remained, and I fell into it and slept. Awake, I grieved. To outrun grief, I'd plotted murder. Murder abandoned, I only wanted sleep. Even mysteries didn't entice me. They exhausted me. Another dream, but not a crowded train platform this time. I was swimming in dark waters, currents warm and cold passing around me. I held a spear and kicked in line with others like me. Fast, devoted, faintly glowing. A wave of panicked fish boiled around us, a wall of flashing terror. But my fellows and I swam against the current. We kicked steadily towards the vast thing that had risen up from the bay floor, as it did nearly every year. The thing of jaws and grasping. The thing that devoured, and worse. The thing all fish fled from. The thing we had to try, once again, to kill. I woke and lifted my hand before my face. The algae on my palm had shifted and now formed a spiral, like the one on the spear-bearer's back. I traced the image, and little surges of sensation and image went through me. Blood in the water, titanic blows, drowning in the air. The next night I went out to a pier a few miles north and sat on the weathered boards. I had a thermos of coffee, a blanket, and a pillow, but I sat awake and watched the water. I had my shoes off, and I held one in my hands, upside down, looking at the soul. After the shooting at the train station, when I was above ground and first realized Sarah was gone, I'd looked down to discover I was leaving bloody footprints behind me. I'd stepped on someone down there, someone who'd been shot maybe, or just knocked down, and in my fear I hadn't even felt them underfoot. I vomited on the sidewalk, right onto a bloody smear from my shoes. But no one took any notice, because lots of people were throwing up, and cops were swarming everywhere. 
I knew I hadn't stepped on Sarah. The crowd had torn us apart. But I couldn't be sure. I'd cleaned my shoes and gone on wearing them, but now I flung first one shoe and then the other into the bay. I started to shiver, though the night wasn't cold. Sarah. She should have been here. The Jubilee would have amazed her. My mother, always more comfortable with women than men, even her own only son, would have liked her. Probably. I sat crying on the pier and couldn't help but think what Bill would say if he saw me weeping. I lay back on the cold boards, gazing up at the stars and the half-eaten-by-darkness moon. Grief was a dark mass moving inside me, sucking the air out of my body, and I fled before it. I looked at the algae on my hand, the delicate starburst shape it had assumed. I could leave and fly home where my gun was waiting. I'd never fired it, but it was loaded for Barrett Wayne Johnston, or maybe for someone else who deserved to die. Or I could go buy a fishing gig and get some scuba gear, though I hadn't gone scuba diving in years. I could take a boat out tomorrow, though, onto the bay and dive under the waves. I could look for faint green glows beneath me and try to find a monster I could actually kill. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. The Upset of Natural Order that which weird spear-clad fish fail to overcome and children in sleeping bags fail to take for granted. Fear and panic are weird things, huh? It's easy to go gigging cowards in the night. They're everywhere out there, bloated in the surf, quivering under the moonlight. But before you do, remember to ask why they're there. Remember that submerged, invisible bubble of suffocation that moves beneath the waves. Remember that there may be blood on your shoes. The floating dead zone of pure negation. It's strong enough to drive any of us to the shore, is it not? I mean, think about it. The one thing scarier than opening the door to your house and seeing a monster eating your family may just be opening the door to your house and seeing nothing but a few scattered yet recognizable remains of a family clearly eaten by something. And again, if you like this story, which chances are you did, at least a little, because it's Everybody Loves Tim Pratt Week, skip over to Podcastle at podcastle.org for Little Gods. So we're running a little long this week. Gonna skip over listener feedback and get right to our kick-ass donor of the week. Eric Wagner. Eric's a father of one, too, by the time we're probably reading this. He's a husband, software developer, and organic vegetable farmer, and general nerd, located outside Athens, Georgia. Much of his creative energies these days are going into a virtual farmer's market system that's sweeping the nation at locallygrown.net. And he's also in the final month of an online beard-growing contest at whiskerino.org. And wow, really folks, whiskerino.org. Go check it out. Them some hardcore beards. 
And I gotta say, locallygrown.net is a really cool site too. It gives the internet's advantage to farmers markets. It's kind of like a farmers market Craigslist. Markets and consumers can both use it to connect with each other in a mutually beneficial way. If you're into eating or selling fresh veggies and such, you gotta check this out. Hey Eric, we appreciate the support, buddy. It's listeners like Eric that keep this show going week to week. Do your part to help a podcast out by throwing a donation our way if you enjoyed this week's story. It really goes a long ways. You can find ways to give at our main page, drabblecast.org. And finally, each week, of course, we announce the winner of our ongoing 100-character twobble contest and shoot the story out on our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. Folks at home can participate in the weekly contest by writing a 100-character story and posting it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums, linked off of our main page. This week's winner, Travelin' Corpse Feet, with this great little 100-character story. My toes began to rot. What? Where's my wish? I'm a leprechaun, silly, the wee man said, tipping his gangrene hat. Fine print, people. Fine print. So, that's our show. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it, spread it, copy, burn, etc. Special thanks to this week's episode artist, Sean as a party, who, while currently is hiding from big, blue, bug-eyed creatures, can still be reached at fatcats.org.uk, where he has a new comic shop section. It's grand. Sean has got some serious talent. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to forget about that ugly fish you found. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 